the fact that we're all like inherently contradictory you know my dad loved me but he was my father but never my parent he fought for the liberation of his country in such a dedicated and committed way but you know he never really managed to do that with his family and so I think you know I think we're all like that in some ways and so I think that that story was really very universal even though it was really specific to me and and to my life hello Rebecca how are you today I'm good thanks how are you Tevin I'm good man and thank you for coming to the podcast it's an honor man to have you on the podcast in the first place so thank you for coming down and very 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 much looking forward to speaking with you this afternoon here today yeah I'm super excited to get into it thanks for having me Ah, for sure anytime and you're doing a lot of amazing work um when I was reading into your profile I was like wow like I feel like a lot more people should know about you um because you're doing a lot a lot of really good stuff so hats off to you and the team you've got around you man like it's um it uh, I'm sure it can't be easy so hats off for everything you're doing thank you thank you thank you yeah we gotta keep it moving yeah, for sure <laughs> To kick things off here, I want to read something. So it's an excerpt I got from your Instagram to kick things off. Let me get this up. Okay, let me read it out, yeah? It's on one of your stories. So for almost a decade, I wouldn't speak about this. For a short time, I was world number one. And before that, I was the British champion twice, Kenyan sports personality of the year, African games medalist, world schools champion, half a second away from the world record, all before I turned 17. But I, and I was also the first black woman to swim for Team GB, and that clicks everything else. What I achieved as an elite athlete, I should have carried with pride for the last 10 years. Maybe not straight away, but after the depression and the loss and sadness faded all, um, and I wish I'd been able to celebrate all for what it was. Instead, I felt shame. I didn't talk about it. I retreated, my, I retreat, I recreated myself, sorry, again and again let it fade into the background until it felt like a different lifetime. I was embarrassed for a long time. I thought it was because I quit the Olympic team because I didn't get to the top of the mountain, embarrassed that I'd failed at the thing I dedicated so much of my young life to. That sounds extremely deep when I come across that. If it wasn't, and my first question to kick things off, if it wasn't necessarily quitting the Olympic team that led to all of those thoughts and those feelings at that period in time, what was it? You know, I think when I think back on my swimming career now, especially after the re-eruption of the BLM movement um, back in 2020, it's really easy to see how much race interacted with my experience of elite sports. Um, I think especially a sport like swimming where, you know, you are really the only black person on poolside. You're the only black person in the pool. Um, and also when I was an athlete, you know, 10 plus years ago now, showing my age, um, we weren't talking about race in the same way that we do now. You know, there wasn't um, really like a huge amount of language to talk about the kind of subtle um, microaggressions and racist undertones that you felt every day. And so, you know, I was very hyper kind of politicized as like a 50 and 16 year old because I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. Um, but I didn't really have my own understanding of blackness. I didn't really have my own 
I guess, relationship with my like black identity, especially as like a light skinned mixed race black woman. Um, I was still figuring all of that stuff out. And so, you know, I think it took a lot of time for me to look back on it and realize that a lot of the ways I felt about leaving the sport were to do with the color of my skin and and how that had been um yeah I guess how that had been kind of handled during my time as a professional athlete it's interesting because as you were speaking there and the image that came into my head was Macaulay Culkin child star in his own right but he's gone through a lot of shit that made it he it was difficult for him you know being exposed to so much so young and then as you're talking I was thinking about that and then you added an extra dimension to that when you said that being the only being a young black woman that period of time it was highly politicized as well so you've got that the pressure that comes with an overwhelming amount of pressure because young people most people in the world aren't even going to be able to relate to that so you've got all of the pressure that comes with that that sort of competition mode probably training every other hour outside of school and then the being heavily politicized at the same time i suppose it can be a very lonely kind of place to be at, at such a young age as well um I would even probably think that the only people that can really relate somewhat would be the people that you're competing against in competition and nobody and even that because when you bring at the black angle to it right it, it gets a bit you know what I'm saying a quite quite a lonely space would you was was that a fair thing to say a hundred percent a hundred percent and I think one of the things that's not well understood I mean swimming is not a particularly sexy sport despite the fact that everyone's kind of naked most of the time (laughs) anyway you know no one you know something it's not tennis it's not golf it's not football like there's not a huge amount of money behind it um it's not a huge spectator sport uh which is surprising to me but that's another uh conversation i think you know no one really understands like how much of a solitary sport it is and it comes down to that 0.01 of a second that separates you from the gold medal or is the reason that you are the one who's standing on the top of the podium. And so these people that you train with and that you, you know, I went to a swimming boarding school um, or I went to a sports school. And so the people that I went to school with, I also live with them and I train with them every day and I ate with them and I went to class with them. Um, And then I would get up at a competition and stand behind the blocks and race against them. And so, you know, as much as we were teammates, we, you know, there's no camaraderie in the same way because it's not a team sport. Um, And I think the other thing that's difficult and isn't really talked about that much, you know, I was ranked first in Britain for quite a long time before I even won won, um, British championships. And so, you know, when you're winning consistently, it kind of compounds that feeling of loneliness because the only way to go is down. Um, And... I think it's easy to be gunning for the top spot, but once you get it, keeping it is a really isolating uh, thing to experience. And then, as you said, you know, kind of the race angle on top of that made it feel, um, yeah, I think even more of a like lonely journey. Did that feeling of loneliness, was that one of the primary reasons why you left the sport behind? It's funny, no one's ever asked me that. I think... Yeah, I think I felt very untethered from reality and from other people because I'd just been so kind of singularly focused on 
you know, on winning and it stopped being about the process and it just became purely about the outcome. It was like, you have to win again to qualify for the team. You have to win to get the funding. You've got to win, um, you know, to secure your place on the next team. And so, yeah, I think I felt, I think I felt very alone. I also think I felt very, um, not even misunderstood. I think I didn't feel understood at all. Um, and I, I guess the other thing is, you know, having a black father growing up in Nairobi, um, I'm from Kenya, I'm half Kenyan. And, you know, education was just like a hugely important part of my life. My mom um, grew up on a council estate in Liverpool and education was definitely her way out of where she came from. Um, same for my dad, who was a freedom fighter and um, a political activist, but an academic first and foremost. So. You know, I was 17 the year before the Olympic Games. And I remember, you know, British swimming saying like, okay, well, you know, you're going to drop out of school um, and we're going to go to Australia to do the training camp and blah, 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 blah. My parents were like, not my kid. (laughs) 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 Not my kid. Um, You know, my mom was, the idea that I wasn't going to do my A-levels was just insane. Um, And it was insane to me as well. So I think yeah, it's funny. She said to me the other day, she's like, do you think if we hadn't put so much emphasis on your education that, you know, you might have carried on swimming? And I think probably not. I think there's a lot of other stuff going on as well that that led me out of the sport. But it was a huge factor. Um, and it, it's remained like a huge focus in my life. I think learning and knowledge, the opportunity to learn and to get a good education is something I really don't take for granted. Yeah, for sure. Education is key. I'm, I'm a massive believer in education. Um, the right type of right types of education as well it doesn't necessarily have to be formalized education, but uh, it's important to carry on to continue to keep learning. And I can imagine if I went to my parents and said, "Yeah, I'm dropping out of school." <laughs> 16, 17 years imagine, old. Yeah, that, imagine that, that conversation ain't going that way. Well. Uh-uh, not my kids. <laughs> I remember when I tried to say I'm not going to uni, and it was the same thing. They were like. Uh, yeah 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 that that don't happen in this house sorry uh, <laughs> no way it's not an option and you know so with you so you've dropped the the swimming so i guess the parental influence in a way the education is one aspect the loneliness is another aspect i guess just in general just loads of different things and that pressure etc cetera, etc cetera. do you feel and you're young you're young bearing in mind like you're, you're young you're, you're working a full-time job as a career and i've heard of some people so i've got uh, a friend who could have been a footballer and then sort of fell out of love with the sport and he still plays now but more just recreationally and he was like it became a job and he fell out he fell out of love with it when he was younger because now you've got to go instead of just playing when you want to play you have to go every single day at this time and then train and do drill after drill it's not fun anymore and you got um emphasizing upon the fact that you're young you're still learning about yourself i'm 29 30 soon actually and i'm learning about myself still Mm. till today Mm. you go through new experiences and you learn more about yourself and you grow and you shaped and you mold into whatever person you become and you're young you're still learning about yourself and i'm thinking to myself that um as well as it being lonely and everything like that but with you being so young and still learning about yourself do you feel that being in such a public and high politicized space at that period of time was good for you at that period of time or was there pros and cons to it yeah I mean definitely pros and cons as there are to every kind of intense situation right like you learn a lot about yourself very quickly because you have to be 
really resilient. Um, you definitely grow up too fast. And, you know, I think that that comes with, that really comes with its own drawbacks, especially, you know, people talk a lot in the black community about like adultification. And I think there's an expectation that, you know, you're definitely treated older than you are. Um, and especially for young girls, um, you know, developing into women, that can be a really strange environment to be in. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, you know, with elite sport, the idea is that you push yourself beyond what you are humanly capable of, right? Like that's why you do it. And on some level you have to love that, right? Like you have to love the pain. You have to love the training. You have to love, you know, the idea that you might achieve the dream one day. Um, but also you hold that intention with the reality that you might not. And so we do this day in, day out for that one moment where you run the perfect race or you score the perfect goal, um, you know, or you swim the perfect length. And that kind of has to be enough to sustain you. And I think when you're young, it's easy to... Um, you know, it's it's easy to kind of focus on that day in, day out when, like you said, you still have love for the sport. Like, I love to swim. I still find it easier than walking. I love being in the water. I love being in communion with my body and, like, that kind of movement. So I really loved to swim, and I was naturally good at it from the first moment. Um and it's a shame that the institution of sport takes that kind of love away. And I think it's not so much the training. Um, it's more that your your body becomes, you know, there are lots of stakeholders in, in your success and your body becomes like a kind of commodity, I guess. Um, and that feels, you know, it, it takes some kind of, you know, it takes the emotion out of out of why you're doing it. Um, and I think that that's what is really difficult to understand when you're younger. And it's probably just a feeling. Now, in retrospect, I can talk about it like this. But obviously, when I was like 15, 16, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I don't, you know, so I think it's, it's really difficult, especially for sports like swimming, like gymnastics, where as, as women, um, or as girls, you peak quite early. So, you know, you see gymnasts winning medals when they're like 14, 15 years old. And you think like, that kid is doing a job. Like I trained 40 hours a week on top of doing my GCSEs. And that's like a really intense level of commitment for a teenager. Um, you know, there's no like going out, there was no drinking, there was no nothing. It was just like, you go to training, you try and do your homework, you go to bed, you wake up, you go to training again. And that was it, my life for like 10 years. It's a lot, man. So it's a lot. Do you, yeah. Do you apply that that elite sports mindset with like having to really push yourself, the like no pain, no gain type of mindset? Do you apply that to your work now? Like your work of ten thousand into ten thousand. The name's changed now, isn't it? Actually, the ten thousand foundation. We've um, just become the ten thousand interns foundation, right? Yeah. We've just expanded. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I think I bring that kind of relentless intensity to everything that I do. Um, it's very hard not to. I think that when you compete at that level for for such a long time, 
um, you know, it just, I don't know, it really changes you. You become somebody who is quite all or nothing. Um, you become someone who is like very comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that that is something I bring to work. And, you know, I have to learn to mediate myself because sometimes I have expectations that other people, um, you know, will, will, like, you know, I think, why would you not want to operate in this way? You know, I'm like, well, we could just do it now. Like, why don't we just do it now? You know, <laughs> people are looking at me like, this girl's crazy and she's in charge. So maybe we have to do it. Um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to be a quote unquote normal person. Um, and I'm learning how to have a normal life that has flexibility in it and has spontaneity and has rest um, and has, you know, maybe just calling it done because that's okay for today but it's hard um it's hard when you've been trained and taught for 10 years that excellence is the only thing that's acceptable and perfection is the goal um so yeah that's something that I bring to my leadership at 10,000 black interns and like all things it has its pros and its cons yeah you know I want to uh, let's take a little side step, put a slight backtrack, I should even say, yeah, and talk a little a bit about the documentary that you produced, The Breakfast in Kisumu. That's so, right. Earlier, you spoke about your, your parents. Your mum grew up in a council state in Liverpool. Your dad was a freedom fighter. And obviously, your dad is the person that you're interviewing within the, the documentary in of itself. What was the message that you were trying to convey in that in filming that document was there a message you're trying to convey was it more like a personal journey that you were just bringing us along on I guess a little bit of both I think you know I've always seen myself as like a conduit between two worlds I think being mixed race especially being Kenyan British you know like one half of me kind of colonized the other and so it's as my dad would say it's like born upon me to be this translator as I get to move between these two spaces and so when my dad passed away, um, you know, uh, my praxis has always been about cultural literacy and, you know, helping people to understand, um, you know, different cultures, different spaces, different kinds of experiences. And I think that that's really, you know, that does a lot of good decolonial work. You know, it helps to make different ways of knowing um, more normal um, and more accepted and more accessible. And for me, I guess, telling my dad's story and telling the story of my relationship to him, uh, we were quite estranged. Um, he was a very classic kind of, I guess, like black African father. And he was quite absent in my life. And so, you know, I really, I wanted to tell the story of our homeland, which is a village in Bondo um, in Kenya on the shore of Lake Victoria. And I wanted to, I guess, connect people to the place that I came from, but also tell the story of, you know, the fact that we're all like inherently contradictory. You know, my dad loved me, but he was my father, but never my parent. Um, and he, you know, fought for the liberation of his country in such a dedicated and committed way. But, you know, he never really managed to do that with his family and so I think you know I think we're all like that in some ways and so I think that that story was really 
very universal, even though it was really specific to me and, and to my life. Um, and so, yeah, so the documentary basically, just to give everyone a bit of context, it, you know, you follow my dad and I um, through this conversation where I'm talking to him about his life. And I was 24 when I interviewed him. Um, and I asked him about his life when he was my age. And the documentary kind of runs in parallel to the backdrop of the apartheid uh, regime in South Africa. And in 94, um, he leaves the UK and goes back to South Africa for the fall of the apartheid regime. And it's also the year I was born. And so that's kind of how the story culminates. It's very interesting you talk about your dad not necessarily being around too much growing up and then but then you growing up and then doing the active activism type of work you can say in a way <laughs> similar to him very different fields but doing similar type of thing uh, in your own life right now when you look back towards your childhood what do you have do what kind of impact do you feel he had on you do you remember any lessons or memories and do you feel like he's his um him as a person or maybe his absence or in, in your upbringing has played an impact in who you are today? Yeah, um, that's such a good question. And it's, yeah, completely. I think sometimes people's absence can be as impactful as their presence. And for me and my dad, it definitely, it definitely was like that. Um, you know, I feel like I'm an exact mix of my parents, which is strange. Um, I think a lot of mixed race kids get that actually, that you're just like half, half. But in terms of personality, even though he wasn't around, so I don't have the nurture side of things. And I, I, there's no real reason why, but I'm so like my father and everyone says that I remind them of um, him. And I guess my dad always told me that, you know, I was gonna have to work twice as hard to have half as much. Um, and he taught me that the world was unfair and that was really important um but he also taught me that because I was his daughter and because I was brilliant that I could do whatever I wanted <laughs> um and I think that again I come back to that like contradiction which he was he was so many contradictions but I think he instilled in me the idea that you know um nothing in life is yours and um you know we're not free until everyone is free and so however you spend your time it's um you know it, it's got to be with a kind of real understanding of the fact that we're like all here together um and so it's kind of i guess been really natural for me to make social change the focus of of my career so far very interesting and there's a line i read uh this where's the line here's the line that the documentary made you understand the weight of your blackness and how you've come to terms of your identity in a very white rural area very interesting line and when you was talking before you was talking um paraphrasing a bit but talking about coming to terms of identity one side of your family coming as another side of your family except that kind of thing it's a very interesting word you're using uh, and a uh, very descriptive, very interesting word in your using. I'm just um, wondering, without growing up with your father being around like that, have you gone through some kind of a journey of self-discovery or, um, you know, discovering your identity? And if you have, how, what did that look like? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I was really lucky um, that I, I grew up in Kenya. And so my mom, um, who is a humanitarian kind of aid worker, um, she worked out in Kenya, um, in the Horn of Africa. And so my childhood was spent in Africa. And so that made a lot of my relationship with race and much less complicated <laughs> um, because I had this context around me that, that explained where I came from and who I was. But then when I moved back to the UK and I went through my, my swimming career, I think, you know, there was a real divorcing from, from that. And so it took me a long time, I guess, going through adulthood in this very, very white world from the age of about 13 until, you know, maybe 10 years of my swimming career that kept me in the UK um, and my exposure to race and racist institutions within Britain, um, you know, there's definitely all of that was really internalized. And so when my dad died, the documentary was was part of, I guess, that journey of, you know, self-discovery, if you want to call it that, or, you know, identity formation or consolidation. And it was the first time I went back to um, the village where I'm from as a an adult. Um, and yeah, it felt really important to understand that, you know, although I am a mixed race and I have British heritage and I have white heritage, I will always be black first um, because I wear it on my skin every day. And so I think, you know, that relationship with my ancestors, with the people that came before me, um, you know, with my father, with the land that we're from, that is something that I kind of carry with me all the time. And, and it was only in, in going and kind of finding that by myself. Um, and after he was gone, I think, I don't know. I think if my dad hadn't died, I don't know if I would have done that work um, as intensely or as intentionally as I did. Yeah, and the documentary was the precursor behind you starting up your business. The, I might be butchering the name, so correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Naya Kadera, is that right? Naya Kadera Group, yes, yes, ah, it's a lure, yeah. it's a lure word. Very good, that was very good. <laughs> ah, great, great. NKG to keep it. Short. Yeah, NKG, that was, NKG. That was the precursor behind you starting that, and then with that, so from what I understand, the small black content creation, essentially helping people to tell their stories That's um, right. through visual means. Can you talk about or share your thoughts on the role you feel that storytelling um, and film? have in driving social change and um decol oh, i can't even pronounce it decoloniality De yes yeah decoloniality yes. yeah yeah yes. yeah um we all know what the right thing to do is in very kind of black and white situations um that's not a pun but <laughs> we all know what the right <laughs> thing to do is um but that is something very different from fairness and equality because we all understand fairness as being very specific to our circumstances and very unique to our understanding of the world and so I think when you talk about kind of racial equality um, when we talk about diversity or inclusion all of these buzzwords that have become you know something completely different you have to remember that when you tell people like it, you know, it needs to be fair or it should be fair or that's not fair, their their understanding of that word is 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 going to be wrapped up in all the things that they've experienced, right? Like we have a huge um, 
you know, white working class in Britain who has been, you know, forgotten at every turn by the government who has, um, you know, suffered through austerity, who have had mining towns closed, who have lost industry, etc. And so their understanding of fairness in the face of, you know, rising immigration is the thing that's led to, you know, some of the really divisive and you know, frankly, like horrific kind of right wing propaganda that we're seeing today. But fundamentally, you know, people's understanding of what is fair is 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 theirs. And so I think you can you can't tell people what the right thing to do is um, when it comes to fairness, but you can show them, um, you know, and through empathy and through storytelling and through um, experiences of living in another's world um you know my relationship with my dad it's about the small village in Kenya and you know these other kind of far-flung countries that he that he lived in like Lesotho and um you know um other places in South Africa and it's not necessarily the case that everyone can connect to that geography or everyone understands like where you know what he's talking about all the time but like they can connect to the relationship between a father and a daughter um and they can see the struggles in that and maybe it mirrors something in their own life and we understand that we're not as different as we think Mm -hmm. we are um and that i think can do a lot to promote social change and and social cohesion which i think is what you know was we need if we're going to share the world and um i think that the film specifically and storytelling in general it also allows people to understand that um, you know, difference isn't necessarily something to be feared. Yeah, and I like what you said there. When people might not necessarily be able to relate to your your dad being from living in certain places and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You might have lived your whole life in the UK, for example. You don't have any experience of that kind of thing, but you can empathise with the the relationship aspect, maybe because I'm sure there's a lot of people that will be able to relate to that aspect of it. For example, there's different ways in which people can relate and empathize and then take away whatever they need to take away from the the story from the film and i'm a massive yeah massive believer in storytelling myself as well i think it's what one of if not the best medium to share messages uh, because you know so in a way that people can empathize with you can nobody likes to sit through a 30 minute powerpoint presentation with facts <laughs> and figures you're gonna fall asleep <laughs> it's boring but for sure but i can sit down and listen to story it's cool yeah. it's interesting and it's a fun way to, fun fun way to no you know, completely take on board, take on board um, new things and to learn i think so yeah no that, that's sick man love that can we, uh, let's talk the ten thousand interns foundation now it's called okay let's do it yeah how did that role come about and mm. also with the recent shift from 10,000 black interns to to split into the two two different companies or groups within the 10,000 foundation uh, what's the vision for the future of the group okay well I'm trying to think about this so before COVID I my dad was as I said my dad was an academic he was a professor and one of the things that he always told me was like you have to you know you have to get your PhD you have to get your PhD and so when he died, I thought, oh, thank God, like I don't have to get my PhD anymore. And <laughs> <laughs> but after I'd made the film and spent so much time with him, you know, eventually I was like, oh God, like I'm gonna have to, you know, it kept calling me back and I was like, fine, I'm gonna go to grad school. So I moved out to America to the Midwest and um, I was I was gonna start my PhD in African cultural studies. 
And then COVID happened and it was all a complete shit show. And I ended up coming back to the UK and I put my PhD on pause. Pause, but not forgotten. Dad, maybe I'll go back to it. (laughs) Anyway, I'm never going to finish my PhD. Anyway, so I started my PhD and I'd come back to the UK and I, you know, I was kind of a little bit adrift as everyone was, I think, during COVID and a lot of people who had had plans that kind of didn't work out or worked out very differently to the way they thought they were going to. So I was running NKG and um, I just dropped out of grad school and then I got a message out of the blue um, about this organization called 10,000 Back Interns. And I wasn't in the UK during um, COVID and the re-eruption of the BLM movement. Obviously, I was in America, so I didn't know about this initiative that had been started. I started talking to some of my friends about it and I was like, hey, like these people kind of uh, approached me and asked me about this, this company. Like, do you guys know what it is? And everyone, everyone knew what it was. Um, and so that piqued my interest. And I think it's also really flattering to be headhunted, uh, just to be completely yeah. transparent about it, <laughs> especially course. when someone wants you to be the CEO. Um, so, you know, I, it's weird because when I started the interview process, I really didn't think, number one, that I was going to, um, you know, keep keep kind of moving through the process. And number two, I didn't think that I wanted the job. Um, and it's funny, actually, my recruiter or somebody would say, like, do you think that you were going to get, were you not, did you not think that you weren't going to get the job? But no, no, I never thought that I wasn't going to get the job. I always knew that I would get the job. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's because it it's, you know, it's like almost the perfect synthesis of everything that I've been doing. Um, you know, right, we focus on access to opportunity and um, we create paid internships for initially young um, black talent and now we've just launched a new program for disabled students and graduates of all ethnicities so trying to really um tackle the insane um inequality and kind of employment gap between um disabled and non-disabled communities and so the organization um yeah started life i guess 2020 creating a hundred black internships for students in investment management. And it grew exponentially uh, over the next two years to where we are today. Um, so I went through this crazy interview process. I met all of the trustees who are titans of industry. And it's funny, I hadn't interviewed for a job for like seven years. I'd just been working for myself. So you know, I had to like mm-hmm. trot in and out of kind of Mayfair and outfits. And I was like in the boardroom. I was like, this is crazy. Um, but it was fun. It was really fun. And it felt like a really exciting challenge. Um, and it has been an insane challenge. But it has also been hugely rewarding. I think I was looking, and I didn't realize at the time, I guess, I was looking for um, something to kind of re-inspire me. And this has definitely been that. So I joined. Um, we expanded. That was kind of my mandate. We're now the 10,000 Interns Foundation. There are two programs, um, one for black students, one for disabled students. And we are going to be launching new programs um, over the coming years. And I guess my focus this year is really digging into our impact and thinking about, you know, what does that impact report look like? What have we done so far? By the end of summer, we've created over 5,000 internships in just three years. So there's a lot of data to work through. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge, huge potential for this organization to be 
really, really impactful, um, not just in London, but, you know, throughout the whole country. That's amazing. So, you know, we've condensed your story into literally like 36 minutes. There's <laughs> obviously, there's going to be a lot of stuff that we, can't, we haven't necessarily been able to touch on, but you've spoken a bit about your swimming career, your relationship with your father, NKG, 10,000 interns, sort of come around full circle. Do you feel like you've come to a place of peace within yourself where you are now? You know, it gets easier every year. I feel more settled. Um, I feel, I feel definitely at peace with the things that, you know, made me feel like my place in the world was uncertain. Um, I know who I am and most of the time I know who I want to be and probably about 80% of the time I managed to be that person. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, yeah, I feel peaceful. I think I would love to see that mirrored in my physical life. I would love to just be still for a while. I've moved around a lot. Um, I've spent my whole childhood moving countries every three years and I traveled all around the world for 10 years with my swimming career and that restlessness I think has stayed with me. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the next chapter of my life, I'm just behind you, but I'm almost 30. I'm hoping that the next chapter of my life is full of, um, I don't know, new challenges, but also rest. That big three O fast approaching. Hey, not too <laughs> fast. Okay. <laughs> cool. And then as we prepare to wrap up, final question, what advice would you give to somebody who's wanting to drive change in their life or in their communities? I think stay, stay as local as you can, um, you know, and don't get caught up in the overwhelming nature of social change there are so many things that we need to address and there are so many issues that we need to put right but start where you are um, with what you have today and recognize that time is one of your greatest resources and just spend it as wisely as you can amazing that's it thank you so much for coming on that's a 1000 voices podcast thank you so much once again rebecca i really 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 enjoyed this conversation actually it's very therapeutic <laughs> everyone always effect. says that about <laughs> about my podcast thank you so much for having me Tim. and this was really cool really thoughtful questions and um yeah it was really really like an honor to be on 1000 voices i love what you're doing so keep doing it thank you so much much appreciated if anybody wants to keep up to date with yourself and the work that you do how can they best do so and then um have you got any final words you want to share as well yeah um well follow me on instagram i'm sure you're going to link that here and i post about everything that i'm doing and a lot of my work which is kind of all i seem to be doing but visit 10,000internsfoundation.com um, just to find out more about the organization and if you are looking for an internship sign up all right perfect that's that so thank you for tuning in everybody if you haven't subscribed to us yet please do it really really does help us in amplifying the voices of the people that we get on this podcast get these voices out as far and wide as possible we can work towards driving some change and challenging perceptions within this country so please do subscribe and share the video if you haven't as well but that's that for now thank you for coming to the podcast rebecca very very much appreciated this is 1000 voices we had the lovely rebecca from 10,000 it black interns or the 10,000 foundation now and for now people we're out